0: of gone full circle from those otoling days where i had full creative control um you know your time used to come through the kitchen and he'd say what's what's on the menu today chef and i would show him and he would literally take things off the plate and say you know what you don't need these let's showcase what you're trying to showcase here the vegetable or the protein
1: Winter can be a tricky time in restaurants, especially in the cooler southeastern corners of the country. We're talking today to Brad Cunningham, who's recently taken on the head chef position at Waygood in Richmond in Melbourne. He's got some smart ideas for winter trading. Brad, welcome to Daddy Linen.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. Really good to have you on the show. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Waygood and what attracted you to working there.
0: Yeah, so um, Waygood is a small uh, wine bar on Swan Street, Richmond. Um, I suppose I was looking for a job uh, where I could showcase some of my creativity, um, somewhere where the menu is a little bit more fluid. um, And yeah, from, from my experience coming the last 10 years have been with kind of large volume, I really wanted to try and scale it down and really trying to um, get back to, you know, what's important on the plate and what's seasonal um, and really try and tap into that local space. What are the locals wanting to eat? Where's Here's a place where, you know, they might frequent once or twice a fortnight. What can we give them? How can we keep it fun? A little bit edgy, but. Really, just get back to honest, um, you know, uh, flavoursome, colourful food. Um, That's just gonna obviously add to their experience um, of of living of living local.
1: Mm. I mean, so what are you specifically doing? What kind of um, what are you offering the neighbourhood?
0: Yeah, well, I suppose when I started, um, you know, having big chats with um, Martin Perk the the owner, um, we're really trying to um, offer something that's a little bit different to our competitors. Um, there's a lot of wine bars, there's a lot of competition on that strip. So what I kind of started to tap into was kind of my uh, experience with um, you know European and Middle Eastern uh, cuisine, so trying to just offer something that was a little bit more approachable, not so refined, um, and all about the flavor, um, tasty food. Um, yeah, that's a lot, of, a lot of vegetables as well, like trying to, um, you know, our demographic, we're trying to, um, you know, we, we see what people are ordering, so I'm trying to have about two-thirds of the menu that is vegetarian or vegan. And then obviously still having some steak and fish and some staples as well.
1: Yeah, right. That's that's really interesting. Um, Are you noticing that people are watching what they spend, perhaps dining out less frequently or, you know, not ordering that second bottle of wine when they do come out?
0: Yeah, I think the the spend for food has kind of taken a bit of a hit. Um, I think people are sitting on drinks a little bit, a little bit longer than they normally would, Um, and a lot of wines by the glass. There's not so many bottles uh, sold these days, unfortunately. So, um, you know, there was a table of three the other night. I think they ordered, you know, about $50 worth of food between three of them. I mean, obviously, they're just out for a bit of a catch-up, a bit of a hang. Um, Maybe people are eating less these days too, which is – Um, obviously not good when you're in the food business, but (laughs) just trying to have somewhere, uh, you know, a a local space where it's, you know, it's okay to do that, I suppose.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting because you want to provide that flexible space for people to have those hangs. Um, And yeah, if they did feel like having a couple of nibbles, you know, why shouldn't they? But it's um, really, really tricky to strike that right balance, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for you know leaning into winter and and it's getting colder and you, you can't just hang at the house all the time you know we we've, we've done a lot of netflix and chill um now it's time to kind of come out and you know we've been out for a couple of years since the you know we won't mention what we've gone through but um obviously with the uh, with the covid era um we're, you know, we we're, we're way we way more social than we were. We've we, we've been connected through social media, and, and now we're coming out and we're having a lot of catch ups. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite interesting to, yeah, see see the the, the the shift and people, you know, not not spending as much as they would. Um, and I I think you know from a small restaurant point of view. You need to be able to have value for money, and I think that's what's going to get us through these colder months. Is um, keeping keeping the restaurant full by offering value for money. You know, our food costs might take a little bit of a a little bit of a hit. You know, we might be running thirty to thirty three percent. We were normally, you know, summertime where it's a bit more fluid. We might be, you know, running about twenty eight to thirty percent. So I think we're just going to have to wear that um, to kind of uh, survive through these colder months, um, especially with so much competition.
1: Mm. And one thing that I think about a lot, and maybe it's because I love desserts is, is the place of desserts. And and I I feel like so many people just don't order dessert. They think, whether they, you know, feel like they're too full or they shouldn't eat it. Uh, but I feel really sorry for um, for pastry chefs and, and, you know, and those, the uh, you know, head chefs that put a lot of thought into that end of the menu. What's your experience in how people are th- approaching the sweet end of the menu at the moment?
0: Yeah, I suppose that's quite an interesting question. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of people that, um, you know, follow these cults like loon and they get their sweet fix other ways um, and chefs have always had this pressure oh you got to have a couple of desserts um, and they've never really, a lot of chefs that I know um, in, in my experience throughout my career have kind of um, it was always a second thought and it was always something you could co- quickly just whip up but I think you know the the technical side of it and the, it's very rewarding to put together a well constructed dish and um you know, I was looking at some sales of what we were doing the last week, and you know, um, our baked cheesecake was you know one of the biggest sellers. So I think people are coming in, and um, if you've got a good a good waiter, and you're offering good table service, you're definitely going to get a um, a dessert out of them. Um, and there were some people that were coming in, you know, they had nine o'clock bookings. Um, they came in for you know a wine um, and and dessert. So you know, having that flexibility to be that place as well, I think
1: is important. Yeah, interesting. And what about margins on desserts? Is that some way that you can you can pick up some of that food cost?
0: Yeah, I think, look, I, uh, you know, everything's gone up in price, dairy um, especially. So I think there is some, there's some margin of error, but I think you still need to come in, you know. You know, I've seen desserts up in the 20s now. It's crazy. So... You know, having something that's still around that $12, 12 to $14 mark, I think, you know, whatever the margins, I think it's just um, adding to that spend per person. And I think that's what we need to kind of tap into a little bit more. Um, people that are coming in just for dessert, well, you just have to wear that if it's a 35% food cost or, or whatever it's going to be. But um, off- offering that dessert and having that, you know, uh, $50 spend per person on food um that's obviously the ultimate um, goal, I suppose.
1: Fred, what about cheese? Because when I go to restaurants, even though I'm a massive cheese freak, I don't usually order it because I guess I'm usually reviewing and I feel like it's there's not much to say about a cheese platter. Sorry if that's offending people. <laughs> but um, is that somewhere, like what? how do you feel people are, are approaching cheese?
0: Look, I like cheese as much as the next... Uh, person, but I think it's tokenistic that we have a cheese on our menu. And I, I think it's great to showcase small producers. I'm not a big fan of having international cheese on my menus. I'd rather have kind of, um, you know, Gippsland or, you know, South Australian or something that's, um, fairly local to, to Melbourne to kind of showcase. So, I mean, uh, cheese is cheese. I, I love it when I go out, but, as a chef, I think, you know, having it portioned or portioning in it to order or whatever you're doing, putting it on a plate, keeping it simple, um, the right temperature, all those little things. Um, and there's not much not much else you can really do with it. Um, the margins are pretty slim because obviously it's way more expensive than it was three or four years ago. Um, so, you know, having your standard soft, hard, and, and blue – or you know, some people get a bit crazy and, and do all sorts of um, fun things. Um, I, I'm a big fan of a raclette, but I understand that it does smell out the restaurant, and people walk in and go if they do not understand that smell, they're like it's a bit putrefied. It's a bit it's a bit on the on the nose for them. But um, yeah, cheese is important. Um, But I don't think um, looking at sales last week, it was one of the lowest selling things. So maybe it's a seasonal thing or maybe it's just uh, people are not being so uh, maybe a bit more conscious on on health. Or maybe people are just buying good cheese and having it at home. I'm not too sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it probably is one of those things that people feel like they can um, create for themselves at home um, maybe they want to go to a restaurant for things that they can't do uh, yeah in in the lounge room um, yeah it's a really it's a really interesting one I mean I think about the cheese trolley at vu demand and obviously that's like next level and you know a completely different experience but When you see cheese presented um, as theatre and art and, you know, really honouring the craft of those producers, then I will totally go to town. Um, But then, yeah, then I guess they're charging for it and there's also a lot of effort that's gone into the accompaniments that go with the different cheeses. So, it's yeah, it's a whole... It may, it's, I don't know, I just think maybe is that what you need to do? You need to really turn it into this massive cheese experience. You need to not just have raclette but have raclette night so that people understand that they're coming for that and that, you know, it's a good smell, <laughs> not a freaky smell.
0: That's right. Um, you know, I, I did I did some work in, in catering um, a few years back and, we you know, we'd set up these massive cheese tables um, and, you know, props and um, all sorts of antique, um, you know, wine, uh, cheese casings. And, you know, it was very, um, very bespoke, but, you know, at the end of the night when you're packing it away and there's cheese that's been out at temperature for, you know, four to five hours, um, you know, that's when it's really, really good. And as, as chefs, that was one of the greatest privileges was, you know, the cheese table was, was touched, but it wasn't wasn't demolished so you'd get to um enjoy some crackers and um and cheese and wine at the end of a massive event so that was a lot of fun
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's great that's really good but then I suppose you know sorry to bring bring it down but I also think about the food waste with those big grazing tables
0: yeah absolutely I mean we you know we'd package it up and we'd give it back to you know the what we could salvage back to them for you know their their staff um, meals the next day or whatever. But yeah, there there is a lot of wastage, especially with those big events. It's it's ridiculous, and and people that have these huge parties in their homes, um, you know, and they're catering for hundred people, but there's only fifty people that show up, and the food waste. You just uh, it's so hard to see some of some of the food have to go into the bin. Um, so, yeah, there's so much more we can do in that space and not be so um, extravagant with um, portion sizes, I think.
1: That's such a tricky one, Brad, because you've got that, you know, you always want to create that sense of abundance and generosity. Um, but, I, yeah, how do you do that and still, um, yeah, and reduce food waste?
0: Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, charities um, homeless kind of um, organizations that are set up non, non-for-profits that are, are getting involved but there was so much kind of tape to cut through like you know uh, food um, food safety and uh, you know things that were uh, it seemed too hard it deemed it was deemed um, impossible to actually donate food after it had been out after four hours and, and things like that so um There was one organisation, one events organisation that would invite uh, people to their venues late at night after everyone had gone home to kind of, you know, feast on the food that was left over. But obviously bringing in, um, you know, a lot of uh, people that are doing it doing it rough was obviously not seen as a good look too as well. So it's a a real finite kind of uh, situation where you've got, you know, polar opposites, people that are almost in famine, and then you've got people that have just got way too much
1: I would love to talk a bit more about your career because it does seem really interesting. Um, you've worked, as you mentioned, for caterers and you also worked for a restaurant group, Riverland Group. Um, how have you sort of approached moving on to those next opportunities? Is it about, you know, learning? Is it about growing? Is it about stretching yourself? You know, what, what leads you from place to place?
0: Yeah, that's a, a really good question, Um you know, I suppose my career, I've always seen it as, okay, what can I do next or what haven't I done? Let's fill in those gaps. Let's, you know, I started off very f- fine dining uh, background and then obviously, you know, uh, worked my way around New Zealand um, and then uh, kind of went to, went to London as we all did, you know, in the mid-20s, when I was in my mid-20s, um, uh, you know, two and a half years over there. Obviously, looking at, uh, I went there with a fine dining mindset. You know, I got a job with um, Gordon Ramsay, owned um, Marcus Waring's at the Berkeley back then, two Michelin stars. So I started there, and that was my 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 journey. That was what I was meant to do. So I went there. I, I think I lasted about eight weeks, and then I thought, Nah, there's got to be more to life than working in these eighteen-hour days. So I went searching for a different, um, a totally different. Um, a job, you know, I, I didn't, I had no interest in in, in, in catering. Have I even thought of it? Uh, cafes, not nah, obviously. London's not very well known for those, but um, I ended up getting an interview with um, Ottolenghi, and he had just released his first cookbook. Yeah, he was selling his cookbooks in the beautiful um, glass um, restaurant Dali that showcased you know big meringues and big desserts and um, you know I as I was always thinking in Australia you'd have to have these all um, you know chilled or you'd all have to have you know <laughs> food safety um, around them but everything was just out it's probably changed now there's probably glass walls up or something to kind of prevent germs but I, I had an interview with him and I really liked what he was doing it was really you know Tupper style um, you know um, lots of lots of colors and, and flavors and so I got stuck there um, but then to just kind of answer your question um, then I when I got back from London I went to Sydney and I, I did the cafe experience for 18 months getting up at 5:30 in the morning um, and then I was I still had a cheap feet so I was like I'm gonna go to Paris for um, a year got a visa went there worked at a Kind of fusion restaurant, Japanese and French fusion. Um, and then when I got, then when I landed in Melbourne, I was like, well, "What? What should I? You know, what should I do?" Um, I got into catering for five years, and that was a really good, massive eye opener. I really learned to work on those volumes. Um, and then I had this goal, you know, when I'm thirty-eight, uh, sorry, when I'm forty, I want to be an executive chef. So I really, you know, was pushing for that, Um, I got a job at uh, Riverland Group and, you know, oversaw six restaurants Um, and that was obviously huge, you know, a lot of computer work, a lot of, um, you know, compliance, budgeting, you know, recruitment, there was, you know, seasonal menu changes um, and a lot of training and development with chefs. Um, So, I suppose coming to a conclusion about my career, I... You know, it was the end of 2022, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? I was giving so much support and dedication to others. I really felt it was time to get something back for myself. So I stepped away from it all, the Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 job. And um, now I'm working five nights at – at a small wine bar in, in Richmond. Uh, so it's a, a real turn of events. Um, you know I met my goal obviously and and thought I, I need to get back and do what I'm best at and um, kind of gone full circle from those Ottolingi days where I had full creative control. Um, you know your time used to come through the kitchen and he would say what's what's on the menu today, chef and I would show him and he would literally take things off the plate and say, you know what? You don't need these. Let's showcase what you're trying to showcase here, the vegetable or the protein. You don't need all these fancy garnishes. You know, he was really the artist um, about simplicity and that's one of the biggest lessons. And I didn't learn it until, you know, later on in my career that I look back and I think, gosh, he's, um, you know, he's really shaped that, you know, simplistic um, vision that I have now for food and, and really trying to, you know, use good technique Um, so, yeah.
1: That's so interesting. I think, you know, I guess I can look at you working at the, um, at Marcus Waring doing those 18 hour days, um, you know, you would have gone there thinking that was, that was the next step for you. You were going to, you know, it was really going to sweep you up and, and push you along, but no, you know, you, you guess you had the insight and I guess the courage to say, no, that actually, nah. Uh, wrong idea, and then again, you know, I guess people would look at that role as ex- executive chef across the Riverland Group and think, you know, that's that's um, you know that's a really high level position, and to, to move to Wagood would be a, a step a step down, really. But for you to, I guess, have the courage and and insight to know that you're doing the right things for yourself to make those moves that are perhaps counterintuitive for someone who's building a career in the industry, I think that's that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I felt like I had to make kind of a um you know, step down to be able to step up again. You know, I'm very uh unknown but I feel like I owe it to myself and, and my career to really kind of try and see how f- far I can push, you know, my my style of cuisine, which um, you know, definitely not fine dining. Um just just good food, honest food done well and um yeah that's that's it uh,
1: um and you know Otto has been hugely influential you know pr- I would say in home kitchens perhaps more than in restaurants, but you know obviously he's been influential f- on for you as a as a chef do you I mean, why, why is that, do you reckon? <laughs> because, you know, I saw him live recently. I'm a, I'm a fan. I've got a few of, his, few of his books. I think he's great. Like, he's total, so articulate and, um, yeah, really, really smart, like in, really interesting thinker about food. But at the same time, I sort of think, like, what is it? Like, don't we have our own, like, Middle Eastern food heroes in Australia? Like, what, what is it about Odalenghi that's that's caught up, swept up so many people?
0: Yeah, it's, it's more than Middle Eastern cuisine, though, Danny. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's vegetarianism, you know. His, his first book was obviously a mixture and there was a lot of meat items in there. But, you know, plenty and plenty more. The two books that followed, they, it was all vegetarian co- cooking. You know, he's two decades writing for The Guardian in London on a veg- vegetarian column. You know, that was his bread and butter um, and then to I think the key to him and why he's been so successful is his um, ability to be collaborative with other chefs he employs and, you know, really try and move in different spaces within different cuisines. You know, um, Sammy Tami was obviously a huge driver of bottling in, in the early days and has gone on to be um, a great, uh, author on his own but you know they collaborated on a book jerusalem which is you know obviously Ottoling is half kind of um israeli and half italian um and then, you know, to go on and, and collaborate with the likes of um, Scully and Extra Belfrish, like, um, you know, he's gone down that Malaysian, gone to the Mexican side. Um, and, you know, to set up his own test kitchen is just genius, you know. And I think his book's Got a lot of traction. I never knew how big he was until you know you're looking at design, decor, kind of home and, home and garden style books, and you see otterlingi books on the dining room or on the um, coffee tables and up in the shelves, and it was became kind of a um, a buzzword, I suppose. But uh, I, I think his the beauty of otterlingi is really showcasing those those vegetables, those proteins, making them stand out. Um, combining interesting flavours and, and not being scared to you know, cross that fusion space where you know a lot of people find that um, confusing when they do it at home. So it's been able to um, give people the confidence to mix this with that and kind of like um, Bibles, I suppose, to, to some um, households.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's so well said. And you've, you've totally (laughs) sold me now. I get it. It's yeah, it's true. It's that vegetable thing. And I I have definitely appreciated the way that he's, um, I guess, given platforms to people that he's worked with. And, you know, I'd add hell and go to that to that list that you mentioned where it's just, um, yeah, he's not afraid to share the limelight.
0: Yeah, desserts has always been, obviously, he's a, he's a sweet tooth. He's studied at Le Cordon Bleu, but he's never really been a chef in the essence of wearing a jacket and being in the kitchen. He's always uh, a collaborator. He always is attracted to someone that's making flavour bombs and he'll go there and he'll tap into that and I think you know opening yourself up to collaborating with other chefs and a lot of chefs are very um, uh, maybe control freaks or maybe just um, hey this is how I do it this is my kitchen but he's like this is our kitchen you know it's a different mindset um, when you step inside one of his kitchens
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Have you been able to bring any of that culture back to the kitchens you've worked in in Australia?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, obviously working for Food and Desire for five years, you know, there was a lot, you know, we had multiple head chefs and an exec chef um, and we were all very, you know, collaborative with our ideas and making sure we gave – a fair representation of the brand that we were trying to um, cook for. And then obviously at the Riverland group, you know, giving that, um, giving that autonomy to other chefs and empowering them to, you know, have a dish, bring it to the tasting. Let's see what you've got. I'm going to give you some feedback. I'm going to um, try and make it better We'll find a better product. Let's talk to suppliers. So really try and open up that, um, that, that style, that, Um, you know I was attracted to when I worked in London Um, back to to Melbourne to some extent yeah for sure
1: Mm, that's really good well so Brad like how are you feeling about things at the moment
0: Um, yeah look we're about to launch uh, neighborhood nights which I'm really excited about and um, you know really really going to tap into that vegetarian space Um, I think it's you know meatless Mondays whatever we're going to do you know um Tuesday Tuesday nights um, you know set menu vegetarian um, very affordable $39 that kind of thing um look I'm how am I feeling about things I'm just um, I'm just feeling it out you know I don't know where where I'm gonna go next um, but you know I'm definitely going to try and make this business as, as successful as I can you um, and, you know, if, if chefs come along and, and want to do um, collaborations or whether chefs want to come in and, and um, you know, take over the kitchen and, and do, you know, those kind of things, you know, we're definitely open, open for, for all that.
1: Ah, so cool. That's so generous. Um, great. Well, yeah, please let me know if you have any um, cool collabs um, happening and yeah, that vegetarian banquets for thirty nine dollars with those Ed- Otterlangi vibes sounds really exciting. So um, a great offering for the neighbourhood and probably beyond. Um, Brad, such a great chat. Really um, appreciate all your insights and you know the the great breadth that you're able to offer to the audience because of all the different things you've done in your career. Um, really wish you all the best with um, the uh, with winter at Waygood.
0: Yeah, it should be uh, it should be quite good, Danny. And um, I hope to see you there. And I'll I'll definitely send you some uh, you know some beautiful cauliflower and uh, some amazing falafel. Actually, the first time I cooked something for your time was falafel, and he's like, "Wow, you're you you've got you've got a I hate to say, it, but you got a, you got a set of balls, you know, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> I think I did it with like grilled halloumi or something. I look back and go, "Oh my god, that's just so it's <laughs> too much." Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll definitely bring out some, uh, some old classics, but obviously with, uh, you know, good technique and, um, a bit more Melbourne, I suppose, you know, we, we love to do that in Melbourne. Yeah. We just make it our own. Um, so yeah, look, look forward, look,
1: look forward to it. Love it. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Brad. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant.